Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. First, two breaking news. Will Amazon workers continue to victory in their mass movement uprising in the new year or find themselves, well, boxed in? The Amazon Fulfillment Center has been shut down as hundreds of employees refuse to work. Customers all over the state are wondering where their Amazon orders are as workers demand more respect and more money. The uprising started with a workplace accident, which Amazon blamed on human error. Joining me now is the victim of the accident, Josh Carter. And Josh, how does it feel to have your accident spark so much upheaval? You know, Tom, I think something like this was bound to happen. There's those at the top who control the means of production, and then there's the working class that enables those means by selling their labor power for wages. When there's conflict, the ruling class tries to blame the working class. Can you get out of the box? No, my organs have been compacted, so if the box opens, I spill out and die. I believe the working class needs to revolt against capitalism and bring about socioeconomic emancipation. Do you get hot in the box? Employees wishing to return to work is about to arrive here at the fulfillment center, and the strikers are not happy. Also, dozens of Amazon customers have shown up, angry customers who wish to be fulfilled. We want our stuff! We want our stuff! The customers say the boxers need to return to work because the shutdown is hurting everyone. I have a weed business to run. I need Amazon to make it all work. At what cost, sir? Do you care that personal worth is being reduced by capitalists to exchange value? Oh, yeah, it's typical rhetoric from a Marxist box. Free trade is not freedom. Perhaps socialism is the answer. If you pay for shipping, can you go anywhere you want? The history of this world is the history of class struggles. Alienated from the products of their labor, from their fellow laborers, and from their very essence. The oppressed worker will eventually strike back at those capitalists who control the means of production. We have nothing to lose but our chains. We will unite in revolution. And if others try to break through the picket line? Nothing else can be allowed into the fulfillment center, no matter what the cost. We're ready to follow you, Josh. Then follow me to hell. And thank you, South Park, for that. And coming up next on Arts Express, musician-performer-turned-first-time actress Alana Haim is our guest this week on the show as the star of the Hollywood satire Licorice Pizza, in which the tables are turned for a change as Cooper Hoffman's 15-year-old aspiring actor is consumed by a crush on Haim's alternately annoyed and fascinated low-wage worker. For both, it's their first time as actors, and Cooper, as the son of Philip Seymour Hoffman, who tragically died seven years ago from a drug overdose found with a needle in his arm when Cooper was just 11 years old. And Alana, with a rather unusual connection to the film, as being chosen for the lead based on her mother having been Boogie Night director Paul Thomas Anderson's grade school teacher in real life as she devours a bagel while fielding challenging questions, including why is she being attacked online for this young boy-older woman romance in a movie, 
While Hollywood has been engaging in that sort of thing the other way around since its inception, though Sean Penn does make a brief appearance in Licorice Pizza as an older perhaps love interest, reportedly based on actor William Holden. While also showing up in a crazed mode is Bradley Cooper as Barbara Streisand's longtime beautician boyfriend John Peters, himself satirized in yet another movie played by Warren Beatty back in 1975 in Shampoo. In any case, one pressing question for Haim, why was Madonna mopping the floor of the theater where she had just seen licorice pizza, supposedly out of gratitude for the movie? First, some scenes from Licorice Pizza, then Alana Haim. It's a god-awful small affair To the girl with the mousy hair I met the girl on Mary one day But her mummy is yelling no And her daddy has told her to go Listen, young lady But her friend is nowhere to be seen So how'd you become such a hotshot actor? I'm a showman. That's what I'm meant to do. To the seat with the clearest view. Do you know who I am? Yeah. Do you know uh, who my girlfriend is? Barbara Streisand? Barbara Streisand. Sand. Sand, yeah, like sands. Like the ocean, like beaches. Barbara Streisand? No, like Streisand. Sand. I think it's weird that I hang out with Gary and his 15-year-old friends all the time. I'm not gonna forget you. Who's in the best It's like you're not gonna forget me. Cross. Hi, and welcome. Wait, hold on. I just took a bite of a bagel. <laughs> That's okay. You can keep eating your bagel. No, no, that was great. I'm ready now. I'm, ready. I'm so sorry. I thought I had two seconds. You're good. You're good. Let's do it. I'm excited. What does the film title Licorice Pizza mean to you, personally and metaphorically? Oh, my God. You know, the thing that I kind of love about the title Licorice Pizza, and when Paul told me the title... I unfortunately wasn't around when, you know, the record store. It's, it's based on a record store that was in the Valley. That's where Licorice Pizza comes from. But even going back further, the real, you know, meaning behind Licorice Pizza was it was this comedy sketch about um, how the, these records were so bad that they could sell them as Licorice Pizzas because they looked like black licorice, you know, swirled into like a little thing. Um, <laughs> But I think the thing that I love about the title so much is that it, it really does remind me of, and this is going to sound so crazy coming from a musician, but it does remind me of like a song. Like it takes on different meanings for everybody and everyone kind of makes their own definition to it. So like, like as if like a Joni Mitchell song, you know, like I feel like those take on different meanings, you know, as you grow older. And I kind of feel like the title has, has that kind of vibe of like everyone has their own meaning. To me, I mean, I feel like licorice pizza is kind of like two, you know, things that would never go together somehow end up on the same place, I guess. And what are your thoughts about Madonna mopping the theater floor after seeing licorice pizza there because she, quote, felt so inspired I had to clean the theater? I have no idea what that means, but I love everything Madonna does. Like, I love Madonna so much. I grew up listening to her music. So if it, if it inspired her to do anything, I am down. I am for it, and I am a fan, and I would love to join her in that, in mopping a theater. Like, I, I'm here for her. I'm here to help. 
And what led you to take on this daring and controversial role of a woman in a relationship with a teenager which is targeting you online? And yet, this similar relationship in Harold and Maud, set in the same period, the 70s, was embraced by audiences. You know, even that whole thing, it's really not about that, though. It really isn't. And I think it's more about their friendship than some sort of relationship. I think that's not the right way to, to think about it. You know what I mean? It's really about these two people that the universe is bringing them together and they go through these obstacles that um, they're better getting over these obstacles together than apart. And, you know, it's never consummated. They're just, they're just, their friendship grows as the movie grows. And yeah, I, I, I don't look at it that way. And what are your feelings about how you're being targeted when Hollywood has such a long history of leading men in romantic relationships with young and teenage actresses? I, I, you know, I, I have, I don't feel a... Hello? Hmm, did Alana just hang up? Hello? Oh my god, hello? So sorry, my phone just literally exploded. I am having... I thought you got mad and hung up. <laughs> oh my god, no, 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 no. Oh my god, I'm so sorry. I answered and I was like, hello? Hello? So sorry. And what are your feelings about how you're being targeted when Hollywood has such a long history of leading men in romantic relationships with young and teenage actresses. You know, I have no, I have no idea. I don't really read anything. I don't really read anything, so I have no idea, you know, even how to answer that. Cause I have no, I don't read that kind of stuff. And what can you say about the creative connection between you and Taylor Swift? And will you be making music together again in the future? What can I say about our, I mean, we've been friends for so long. We got to be on the, um, on the 1989 tour, which was one of the most amazing experiences to have. I mean, we love playing music and, and we're such fans of her, you know, songwriting and, and all of her songs. So, I, I mean, we, we have collaborated with her already on a song called Nobody, No Crime. And she's just been great. I mean, she's incredible. She's an incredible person and, 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 a, and a, an amazing friend. Mm. And getting back to Licorice Pizza, what was that strange manic appearance of Bradley Cooper as John Peters all about and his ranting about Peters' then relationship with Barbara Streisand? What was it about? Oh, I didn't think it was strange at all. I mean... Yeah, it was pretty strange. And that hairdresser himself portrayed in another movie back then, Shampoo, by Warren Beatty in 1975. Um, I mean, having Bradley Cooper uh, on set for the first week was an incredible experience. It was kind of going through, you know, having someone like him and as like, uh, he's basically one of the most amazing actors of all time. And it really did bond me and Coop together because, um, sorry, my siblings are calling me. <laughs> Whoa. Um, he was just, I mean, he came in like a cyclone. And I think you kind of see that in the movie. He walked in and he was John Peters and he never broke. And, and it was amazing seeing someone going through, you know, his process. I mean, I learned so much. I learned so much just watching him. And, and I'm so grateful that he was a part of this movie. And what was it like acting with Cooper Hoffman as his first film? And who lost his father tragically? esteemed actor Philip Seymour Hoffman when he was only 11 years old. You know, it's so funny. The universe 
is a very crazy place. Um, I met Cooper Hoffman um, when Paul was editing Phantom Thread. So, you know, the crazy connection between me and Paul, how my mother, you know, oh, yeah. taught Paul. And I feel like I have a crazy, you know, story about how I met Cooper. And Cooper, uh, I walked through the house, of the editing house of Phantom Thread, and he was sitting in this chair. I had never met him before. And uh, when I met him, I didn't know then, but I know now that I mean, we took him. I, I, Paul asked me and my siblings to babysit him for, for a couple hours, which is so funny that now, you know, I basically play his chaperone in this movie. Uh, but I, you know, babysat him for a couple hours. And took him to a to a sushi restaurant in the valley. I mean, I feel, I feel like if you grew up in the valley, you know that the original Kitsuya is in a strip mall. <laughs> and we were just trying to be, you know, friends with Cooper because he was insanely intimidating, even as a child. And we took him to Kitsuya. And I didn't know then, but I know now that really, you know, I was having dinner with Gary Valentine with my sisters. And, and cause he sat down. And I'll never forget, he took his retainer out, <laughs> and he set his retainer on on the table. And then he just kind of took over the conversation. He was asking us questions. And, and we were much older, you know, than him. He was, like, 14, and we were, me and my siblings were in our early 20s. And he was ordering for us, and he was, you know, uh, asking us questions about our life and, you know, looking at us. And I was not like a, you know, a teenager that was intimidated by these three girls that, you know, we were on our home turf. I mean, he was from New York. He had no idea where he was, and it kind of felt like we were at his restaurant. Mm -hmm. And when we were trying to find a Gary, me and Paul, me and Paul really did audition a bunch of, um, a bunch of Gary's, and it just didn't feel they were the right fit. And Paul had said, when Paul had said, you know, what about Cooper? I mean, I had remembered Cooper from that dinner. That was when I, you know, I could feel it then, like, okay, like I, I can do this. And because he, you know, I feel like Cooper can do this. I can do this. And we all kind of looked at each other and we were like, oh, okay. And being on set with him, I mean, we were, we both have never done anything like this before. We both have, um, we've never acted and it was very comforting um, it was very comforting to have someone that had never acted and I had never acted. And every day, you know, we, every day we like very much, you know, never thought that we were doing good. <laughs> we always called each other and we're like, oh my God, are we, are we okay? Like, did we, did we do okay? And, and it was nice to have someone because if someone was, you know, a well-trained actress, it would, um, it wouldn't have been the same because I would have felt so insecure every day. We were both just equally insecure every day, which was very nice. And Licorice Pizza is just out in release. And coming up on Arts Express, this is not a sitcom. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, the curtain is about to go up. There's a new theater tonight in Lancaster. Wendell Woodbury says the acting is a little wooden, but there's good reason for that. Robert Brock has always dreamed of owning a theater, and now he has one, making this Lancaster's first permanent puppet theater. I always wanted the theater, and I always knew I would live above it. Um, ticket sales are terrible, and they said that I wasn't American Pie enough. Plus, I think it was a little too gay. <laughs> never had a long-term relationship. His audience is that partner. 
It's the relationship that I've had the most success with. Thank, Thank you. you. You're a wonderful yes. audience. Are you ready now yeah. for yeah. me to say the magic words? On with the show. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. There's a long history of actors and variety performers who have had their first taste of theater with a basement childhood puppet stage. Now in a new documentary, director Alexander Minnelli brings to life the joys and woes of actor Robert Brock's single-minded adult pursuit of his childhood dream in Minnelli's new film, Marionette Land. The film also explores themes like loneliness, performance, perfectionism, and the need to connect. I'm happy to welcome as our guest, director of Marionette Land, Alexander Minnelli. Hi, Al. Hi, Jack. How are you? Great. Al, tell us about your film. It's a feature-length documentary, and it's all about Robert Brock, who lives above his puppet theater. It really is kind of a, a film that really shows his personal life and what it's like to live above a puppet theater and have that really be his only profession that he has. You know, he doesn't go somewhere and work nine to five and come back and, and do his puppet shows. He writes them, he stages them, he does the voices, he does all the controls. And, uh, and then he has his mother and she's 85. She lives with him above the theater. But what I like about their relationship is it's not like a sitcom. It doesn't feel forced or written. It's really this sort of delicate, simple relationship they have. To me, that's really the heart of everything is their back and forth. It really also, we were, and I hope this isn't spoiling too much, but obviously we shot this throughout 2019 into 2020. So it kind of goes into, you know, the pandemic and all that. And he was already isolated a little bit living in this own world that he created. But then the pandemic comes and it's kind of like, okay, now you, you can't leave. So, Al, how did you get involved in filming this? I met Rob in 2014. I knew him. I knew all about him. I made a short film about him once just for fun to kind of put on YouTube. And Rob happens to live five minutes away from me. So <laughs> I said, Lancaster, Pennsylvania is right, where he has right, his right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was, it made sense. You know, I knew there was more to his story, I knew he was a very sort of complex guy. I had always wanted to do something longer with him, and I just felt like, okay, this is uh, this is the time. As Brock says, he's uh, a legend in his own mind. As he, as you mentioned, he he acts all the roles, builds all the puppets, does the publicity, runs the lights and sound cues. I I don't know if it's just me, but I think he bears a striking physical resemblance to Nathan Lane in, in appearance, manner. And, and, and Nathan will definitely have to play him in the musical biopic. Or, well, or Robert I, I, will have to play Nathan in his biopic. <laughs> yeah, I, you're not the first person to, to bring up Nathan Lane. He ah, certainly okay. has the Nathan Lane uh, look to him. And I would love to see, I would love to see a music. I really think this film could be a musical. Yeah. Um, it, it's very musical in itself. And I think Nathan Lane would be a fantastic choice to to play Rob. So, yeah, he, he's an interesting guy to watch because he's so obsessive and seemingly always on. So, when did he first start with puppets? It was sort of wrapped up with a very emotional time for him when he was young, right? Yeah, he was four years old, and he had some kind of tumor on his spine, 
and he was in the hospital for a while. And it was there that he and his mom started making paper bag puppets. His mom, as shown in the film, she worked for a church. And so there were always church groups and events and things to go to. There was constantly people and they would always kind of play with Rob and, you know, make puppets. And it kind of just grew from that. And you can really see Rob's creativity throughout the film because I I want this to be like an anthem for creative people because it is such a look into what it's like to have a vision and then just everything get in your way. (laughs) So that's Rob's life, you know, and and his, his creative pursuits kind of echo his, his life in a way. So, I mean, that's, that's the big thing for any creative artist is how to integrate your art with your life and, well, your opening shot of the film show what he's done with his theater and his living arrangements. So why don't you explain that to us? And originally, there was it was him saying, you know, hey, I live above my puppet theater. But I felt like we had a shot that I could just put in that would better demonstrate his, his living situation. So we see him getting coffee in his kitchen. And then do you want to go back down? And I follow him in one unbroken shot all the way back down his steps and all of a sudden in his living room it's a you know you see those old red theater seats and the stage and the curtain i just thought that was kind of a a fun way to show the audience and then he moved in a couple decades ago and first they they bought the building and built the studio in there and then they decided to move in above it him and his mom for me i I, it's a it's a unique thing because he has his own ecosystem and that's why it's really called marionette Mm -hmm. land because Mm -hmm. he doesn't have to go anywhere like he does not have to leave the premises living with his mom is a whole nother issue so i think the film kind of goes into that they don't eat dinner together to me the fact that they don't eat together was i thought the crystallization of their relationship i eat what i want to eat she eats what she wants to eat like they felt no pressure to sit and eat together. And I just thought that was interesting. Well, you, you have some gorgeous shots of the puppet theater itself and the plays that are on The Wizard of Oz, Peter Pan, uh, Cinderella's Christmas, Sleeping Beauty. I'm not going <laughs> to ask you which is your favorite, but the children are clearly absolutely enchanted. What I really like that you showed in the film is these kind of two separate worlds. And it's the photography is great on this because you really have two separate worlds, the marionette world and the stage world and the make-believe world, which is beautifully shot, beautifully lit, bright colors. Robert is always on and projecting sparkly energy. And then there's the other side when the audience leaves and he goes upstairs and he's just eating or shaving or whatever. And the colors are very flat and yeah. uh, everything is much muddier and darker. Mm-hmm. You really got that feeling that, that as Robert says, I've created my safe space at the theater and I'm proud of that. You really define that for a creative person, how important yeah. that is. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you kind of noticed too the difference in the cinematography because yeah. I definitely wanted the upstairs to feel uh simpler, less whimsical. I was wondering when Rob said I've created my safe space at the theater and I'm proud of that. As a director, writer, editor yourself, are there any ways in which you identify with Robert? Well, yeah. 
I try to find stories where I see some of myself. I, you know, I, I don't think that's narcissistic, but I want to share a part of myself in my work. I think most filmmakers, artists, whatever, feel that way. So with my last film, it certainly was the case. And, and with this one, Marionette Land, it's certainly, I identify with Rob. If you look at the credits for the film, it says shot, edited, directed by Alexander <laughs> Minnelli. Yeah. You know, the, the parallel between that and a, a production by Robert Brock, you're going to see the same, the same credit, you know? <laughs> right, right. Um, and I, again, going back to being a creative person, I think what I what I love about Rob's spirit the most when when you make something it takes more than talent. It's not just being good at what you do. It's not for, so for Rob it's not just oh he can sing and dance or he can make puppets. Mm. You need something or a lack of something that allows you to present something you made to the world. And it's very, you know, it can be very difficult. So a lot of people are just afraid to do that, to be judged, to put mm -hmm. something out there where others are going to critique you. I think that that ability to present the world with something you've made and spent time on that shows a part of yourself, that lack of embarrassment, that that is what I love about Rob Spirit the most. Like he does not. Certainly it affects him. It affects everybody. But at the end of the day, he believes in what he's doing and he's not afraid to share something with the audience. And that is special. His candor and his openness are very appealing. And I have to say, the thing that I was really struck by was perfectionistic as he is, he wasn't afraid to reach out to people to help him to have a director, to have a choreographer, to ask for advice from his mother, even though, even though it's not easy to hear the advice sometimes. He knows that he's trying to give us the best that can be given. And he's, he somehow manages to get over his ego in that way. Yeah, I thought for me, my favorite scene in the whole film and my favorite thing to actually be a part of was when he was doing the rehearsal for the grown-up show and then they had that kind of note taking session afterwards right, and right. it was exciting to be in that room the dial was turned up for everybody you know everyone was speaking louder everyone was animated it was it was there was a lot of energy in there mostly rob and buddy the choreographer and it was so wonderful and that was again why another reason i wanted to tell rob's story is because i don't think if you came to one of his shows the average audience member would assume it was to that degree, that mm -hmm. he was sitting down, writing down notes, bringing in a choreographer from the Fulton Theater, which is like the big professional theater in yeah. Lancaster. And that was what impressed me because he wanted it to feel, certainly to have be you know whimsical and homemade, but he wanted it to also feel professional and exciting and a fun night out. So the lengths at which he went to produce his shows and get it right. Yeah. Um, as, as a perfectionist myself, yeah. I, I totally saw myself in that. So. <laughs>
And and let's be clear, we're not talking about Radio City Music Hall here. We're talking about a very small right. theater yeah. in a room. How how many seats would you say he, it's he an, has? It, it's fifty ish, and it depends on uh-huh. you know sometimes they on can a good day. Yeah, yeah, but max seated, I think it was like fifty some, fifty five maybe. The crux of the film comes, as you said, with something that you couldn't have suspected. He's looking forward to the year 2020 for his 30th anniversary in puppetry. And what happens? <laughs> well, it's funny because- We I, can all you know, ask what happened, right? Yeah, yeah. I wasn't sure how to introduce this into the film. And I went into so many different variations of it. And you know, part of me was like, should I just start the film in the pandemic and then mm. go back before it? Or- would people suspect when he keeps talking about 2020 and how excited he is, would it have that feeling like, uh Oh, there's a train coming yeah, and Rob's yeah. sitting on the tracks and he doesn't realize it, you know, yeah. like, does it, I wasn't sure how to introduce it, but it ultimately. I think you did great. I think, I think okay. what you did was perfect. Well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, here we really get to the, the heart of the story, don't we? Because, you know, I think the audience can guess that if we're in 2020, we're talking about COVID and we're talking about closing. Robert says, if I don't perform, what the hell am I going to do? Because he's always said that the relationship he's had the most success with is his audience. I think the last shot of the movie proves him wrong. And that was ultimately mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. I was... What but I we won't give to... we won't give that away. Yeah. His sister, who's kind of another character, says mm-hmm. her brother Rob is so full of himself he doesn't need a partner to complete him. Did you find that to be true? To a to a point, and I think Rob makes that joke kind of as well sometimes in passing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I think if you if you read between the lines, I, I think it's the opposite. I think he's right that he would have a hard time living with somebody. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. uh, but you know, I, I don't think he, I don't think he is alone. And again, it's going into the, to, to the ending and, and all that. I think he, okay. he, I think he cares much more for his, I think that relationship is much more important and, and part of him than he even realizes. Well, Rob is a great character. It's a very <laughs> interesting story about an eccentric creative guy the themes of loneliness and isolation and what COVID does to creative people is also very timely. As we wrap up, Al, tell us how we can see the film and any last words that you want to add. Well, the film comes out January 18th, so you'll be able to see it in many, many different outlets, including uh, Amazon Prime, iTunes, DVD, you know, I know this is an arts show, and yep. if you're someone who's interested in arts, if you're an artist yourself, I really think seeing and experiencing Rob's trials and tribulations and all that, you you will see yourself in it um, at some point in some way. I mean, he is the ultimate auteur. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Alexander Minnelli, the director of Marionette Land, a fascinating portrait of a creative man whose safe space dissolves as COVID deprives him of an audience, yet continues to cope. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. Come on, everyone. Second star to the right. Straight on to morning.
Yeah, hey, John Savage. If you're, if you're listening to this right now, you're way ahead of everybody else in the world. This is Arts Express with Barry Miller, and she's had the courage to give a call to me, uh, John Savage. And uh, I'm grateful to be a part of what I consider to be one of our most important radio programs and networks we have available in this country today. Hang in there. All right. And now on Arts Express, Steven Spielberg's 1975 Jaws was in no way just a horror movie and whose implications may be said to continue resonating in our present time. Namely, not just the notion of the human condition or a man's struggle against nature in that timeless epic Moby Dick, but human existence in conflict with capitalism and the precedence of profit over our lives most manifested today in this pandemic in progress. There is a creature alive today who has survived without change, without passion, and without logic. It lives to kill. A mindless eating machine. It will attack and devour anything. It is as if God created the devil and gave him Jaws. I just found out that a girl got killed here last week. And you knew it. You knew there was a shark out there. You knew it was dangerous. But you let people go swimming anyway. You yelled shark. We've got a panic on our hands on the 4th of July. Jaws. And Spielberg's work, past and present, is the subject of our hot seat guest this week, film critic and author Armand White, talking about his just-released published work, Make Spielberg Great Again, the Steven Spielberg Chronicles. We discuss issues from very different perspectives, the National Review film critic's position to the right of mine, though we often agree as to what's going on in the middle, the establishment's reign over what movies get made or not, and the questionable state of movie reviewing in America. For instance, why each year, when hundreds of movies are released, all the groups award the same ten or so movies? But at the same time, in terms of class differences, whose opinion really matters? when in most cases those who pass judgment on the best and worst movies for the masses are not from the masses, or made by the masses, which would take education and equipment to make, but rather middle-class intellectuals. In contrast to, say, music, which has been historically derived from the masses, and black music rooted in slavery as really America's classical music, but that has never been acknowledged as such. And on that note, the discussion of White's book begins with the unusual convergence 
of its release with the opening of Spielberg's West Side Story remake. My first time in New York City. I want to be happy here. I want to make a life at home. Are you ready? Tonight is about family. The first gringo boy who smiles at you. I never seen you before. I'm not Puerto Rican. Is that okay? Do you want to start World War III? You know, I wake up to everything I know either getting sold or wrecked or being taken over by people that I don't like. You keep away from him as long as you're in my house. I'm a grown-up now, Bernardo. I'm going to think for myself. Tony, we need you if we're going to war. Who are you? Friend or foe? If you go with him, no one will ever forgive you. Life matters even more than love. Hello and welcome. Hi, Brary. Happy to talk to you. Now, just as you've come out with this tribute to Spielberg, West Side Story has appeared, which you're completely disappointed with. So what happened for you between the release of your book and the opening of Spielberg's West Side Story? I think, I think it is very conscious, absolutely. He, he knows what he's doing as a yeah. filmmaker. So does screenwriter Tony Kushner. I think it's a, it's a conscious effort to try to appeal to the oh, to the Barack Obama idea of racelessness, you know there was there was a phrase people used to use the phrase uh, biracial before Obama, and then they stopped because that was too complicated, and people simply wanted to worship the idea of Obama, and this is this has changed Spielberg's thinking, and you can see evidence of it in West Side Story, in the way that race is exploited, uh, the way they they trot out. Uh, Rita Moreno to talk about race and how the original 1961 West Side Story was was faulty because it didn't have genuine, authentic, uh, real Puerto Rican. And, and she runs around now talking about her new ver- this new version with Spielberg as if casting Puerto Ricans was the issue. 
both Rita Marino and Tony Kushner and Spielberg seem to forget about what how art works. Art is a, art, art works when when the artist takes up the experience of everyone. You don't have to be a Puerto Rican to show how Puerto Ricans feel, uh, but you have to be an artist to show how Puerto Ricans or anyone humanity works. That's 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 the definition of an artist. The definition of an artist is not appealing to uh, political correctness. And Spielberg's lost in West Side Story. Why did you embark on a book about Spielberg, and why now? Well, he's always been a filmmaker that I responded to uh, with the first theatrical release, uh, The Sugarland Express, back in 1974. And so I wanted to do a book about him because it, it kind of coincides, his career coincides with mine in a way. I started doing film reviews for my college paper back in Detroit, the, the South End, and at about the same time that Spielberg started making theatrical features. And I realized that over the years, I had written about every Spielberg release and I guess I could say the progress of his career, the development of his career, kind of paralleled my own. And it was also a way for me to to look back and assess my own my own writing as well. And so I I decided to do a book about it. And and the real reason I, I guess I admit is you know, he's kind of a provocation, but it's also a wish. Uh, he's made some of the best movies of my movie going life. And he hasn't done that lately, and I, I, I wish he would get back to his former greatness. And regarding Jaws, the question of artistry aside, its theme of profits before people and risking human lives to make money has existed ever since. And what dangers those in power are willing to perpetrate. What are your thoughts about that? Well, Spielberg is a commercial filmmaker, and commercial filmmakers are pledged that they there are artists in Hollywood and there are hacks in Hollywood. Spielberg happens to be a hack. I'm sorry, oops, this flipped out, did it? But he's always an artist. He's an artist first. Uh, he's one of the few artists left in Hollywood. But being a, an artist in Hollywood, it may seem like a kind of contradiction. But that's what he is. A few of them make movies to express themselves, like Spielberg. And now the theme of his movies, I think, is is power. And so, you, if you like, you could connect that to how capitalism works as a, as a the profit motive. Uh, he praises power itself in his most recent films. And regarding your controversial opinions, whether in books or criticism, would you say you've ever been a victim of cancel culture? <laughs> uh, probably, yes. Yes, I think so. Uh, sure, of course, of course. Uh, and uh, listen, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a black film critic. That is an anomaly. And in our racist media, a black film critic, a black, any black person who thinks of themselves uh, has, has the risk of being, faces the risk of being counted. And so this has happened to me, of course. I, I, I don't get the, the commissions or the speaking engagements or the, or the, uh, the writing assignments. Um, that I used to get, hmm. because uh, this, this is ironically what has happened in the age of brokenness, where where media people pretend to be inclusive and open, 
but they actually are only inclusive and open if you say the things they want you to say. If you're an independent-speaking black person in the media, you risk being canceled. I've always been an independent thinker as a, as a film critic. And as evidence, I think, in, 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 my, in my willingness to write a book about Spielberg where, where I point out his great artistry and also his turn to what looks like a, a dark side. Mm. I'm, I'm, willing, I'm willing to to be that complex in my response to Spielberg, not, not simple in my response to him. Think about the instance of Spielberg's West Side Story in contrast to his film The Color Purple. Mm. And West Side Story, screenwriter Tony Kushner and Spielberg exploit the idea of race, whereas in The Color Purple, race is looked at as a way of understanding characters' humanity. There's a real difference between those two films. And, but what's, what's happening now with the West Side Story, Spielberg has, has made a movie that, that follows the political trend, the social trend, rather than a movie that, that shows his, his unique personal understanding of human experience. Uh, he's lost that. And I wish he'd get it back. And I wanted to ask you on another note, during this award season, how is it that all the film critic groups seem to robotically choose the same 10 or so best films when hundreds are released during the year? Well, Barry, you've always been very good at, <laughs> at, at, at paying attention to films that don't come from Hollywood, at independent films and, and, film, and filmmakers who do different things than the mainstream. And I try to do that as well. Uh, most film reviewers don't do that. Most film reviewers... They are pledged to Hollywood. They're pledged to the profit motive institution. Whether or not they're aware of it, whether or not they will ever admit it, they probably will never admit it. They think, they like to uh, pretend that this is just a natural order of things, that only Hollywood films matter. And so when we give awards, we give primarily to mainstream media Hollywood films. It only, sh- it only shows that these reviewers cannot be taken seriously as critics. Mm. And I, and I specify a difference between reviewers and critics. They call themselves critics, but they're not worthy of the title. It's like the consensus is the consensus not critical. Uh, it's a consensus that goes along with the mainstream rather than searching out uh, genuine independent art. And what would you hope people to understand about Spielberg reading your book? That he's a great artist, or was a great artist, but that also that he's a human being. And as a human being, he is as susceptible to the sway of politics as anyone. And so be careful of that. I, th- I think it's a, it's, a, it's a real issue uh, that Spielberg ruined his artistry. When you look at a movie like, like Lincoln, uh, it's never mentioned that Lincoln was a Republican. It's never mentioned about uh, his, spiritual, his spiritual aspirations. Instead, it's about power. It's about the use of power. And that's what, that's what the movie Lincoln worships. I think it's also why the, the look is so weirdly dark, because it, it, you know, the, 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 the humanity, uh, the optimism that there used to be in, in Spielberg's work and great films like The Color Purple and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, that's all gone now. Instead, you have this, this, this Barack Obama Tony Kushner smartness about politics, the shrewdness, this, this, this worship of, uh, of gold duggery in politics. Uh, it's kind of dark and ugly.
And what would you like readers to understand about you as well, or what they misunderstand about you? Because you've been pretty controversial. Well, you know, people call me names <laughs> right here, like like like, like uh, contrarian. <laughs> and I always say, well, if I'm contrarian, what are the other critics? <laughs> that, that that must mean the other reviewers, <laughs> they're not contrary to anything. They just they're shills. They just sell yeah. the product as it comes out. Uh, that's what people need to understand more clearly, I think, and also understand what the practice of criticism is about. Uh, criti- the point of criticism is not to sell Hollywood product. The point of criticism, as I try to practice it, is to give people ideas to think about when they see a movie. Mm. And, and also, also clearly, uh, they call me names, <laughs> like contrarian, because I don't say things that other critics do. Well, that's why I do it. There's no point in me repeating what other people are saying. There are thousands of people out there who are willing to say that Spielberg's West Side Story is a great, politically correct movie. I don't think that way, and I'm not going to say that. And I think that that's the value of an independent thinking film critic. That's what I, that's what I struggle to be. <laughs> Where, you know, people don't... I, I really do think some people get into film reviewing because it's, they, they think it's in some sense glamorous yeah. or that it's a, it's a, it's a, they think it's a group activity that, that all reviewers delight and they, just, and they want to be part of a club. They yep. don't appreciate uh, independent thinking. Those people will, will always are always the most easily upset. Uh, they're all, and they're also often the ones who don't want to have a difference of opinion. Hmm. Uh, they don't want to listen to a difference of opinion. Simple Simon says, pat your belly. Simple Simon says, pat your head. Do whatever. Do the Simple Simon. That's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.